Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Once again, trying to find our place in history, it's episode 208 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and this week, going to be jumping in the lifeboat with Malcolm Barrett. That's right, Rufus from Timeless, going to join me this week to talk about the show, not just the episodes that we've already seen, but stuff that we can look forward to in the second season. There was a couple of things when I talked to him, very, very interesting, that he said, if you're a Timeless fan, you're definitely going to want to wait for that. In case you missed it, another special edition interview actually happened this week as I talked to Aaron Pierre, who plays Dev M on Krypton. So make sure you go to downandnerdypodcast.com when you're done listening to this show and listen to that as well. A lot of great insight from Aaron on Krypton, and I know that you'll definitely love that. Will you love the books that we're talking about this week, though? We'll find out. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is artist Jay Lee, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Power up that tablet, drag out the long box, or get that laptop running. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And speaking of running, Sonic the Hedgehog is off to the races for the first time in IDW Publishing. So let's talk about it. Written by Ian Flynn. Tracy Yardley doing the pencils on this one. Inks are actually a team of Jim Amash and Bob Smith. Matt Herms doing the colors and Corey Breen on the letters. Amazing cover by Tyson Hass, who is no stranger to the Sonic world. Now, Sonic and his friends once again defeated Dr. Eggman, but now he's gone silent. So, going to try and do this as spoiler-free as possible, by the way. His Badnik robots, though, the robot army is now wreaking havoc all on their own, going from town to town. So basically, this is Sonic's adventure of traveling to all these different places and cleaning up what's left of the robots, right? We see a lot of great personality from Sonic, and of course, just like, you know, we're Sonic fans, that kind of comes across in the book as well, where the townspeople, you know, they know Sonic. He's a little bit of a celebrity, just as some superheroes are at times. And I just love that interaction between Sonic and the people you get, you know, I get, you know, happy flash vibes when I see this Sonic book. And I'm not just saying that because they both run, you know, how Barry Allen was always very personable as the flash with the people and everything like that. Well, Sonic is very much that way. So I kind of see that parallel there. And then you see the good action when Sonic's doing his thing. And we even get to see a familiar face pop up right away in the first issue, which I loved. And that team-up was great. And then it's almost like a look forward to of, okay, so this is something different now that we just experienced, so what's going on? Is Dr. Eggman back, and what's the deal? So that's kind of what we're trying to find out in this first issue. Now, the person that's actually pulling the strings, we don't actually get a whole lot of information on that. Very, very little. We just know that kind of what their main goal is, and the kind of, and then the main goal is kind of that of almost any villain, right? And kind of what you would expect in an issue like this. But there was a lot of just action and running sequences, and it didn't even feel like a video game book at all. It just felt like a Sonic the Hedgehog story. It didn't seem like it was being adapted from any game or anything like that. It just seemed like it was a standalone story, and it was what it was. As a matter of fact, it, it seems like a pretty interesting story, and you got to wonder if Dr. Eggman 
is going to be back or not. And what other, you know, there's some Easter eggs in there of other favorite characters that you might see at some point, or at least a couple of it, a couple anyway. I just thought that this was a great introduction to Sonic the Hedgehog for IDW readers. And Ian Flynn does a masterful job. It just seems like Ian Flynn's on a hot streak right now. I mean, if you're looking for a writer to to put on a project, especially something that's kind of family-friendly but really fun, Ian Flynn just seems like the guy that you're going to go to. And Tracy Yardley and the gang do a great job on the art. When I found out that Tyson Hess wasn't doing the interior art for the first issue, I was a little bummed because I'm a Tyson Hess fan anyway. But love the cover. And Tracy Yardley, no drop-off there at all. So overall, I mean, you're getting a great color, you're getting great interior art, and it's a fun story. I just had fun reading this book, and as somebody who reads a lot of comics, sometimes I just need to have fun, but this also happened to have a good story. So Sonic the Hedgehog, no surprise, big winner for IDW. This is a poll for me this week. Going to go back to the new age of heroes from DC Comics and go to the curse of Brimstone, number one, from DC Comics. Storytellers are Justin Jordan, who's doing the writing, and Philip Tan, who does the art. Rain Barreto does the colors, and Wes Abbott doing the letters. Now, this actually follows a young man named Joe Chamberlain, who lives in the town of York Hills. Now, kind of the meat of the story is about the small town, small town life itself, and the misfortune that this town has suffered because of the way that the world is now, and it's kind of being them being left behind. And there's also kind of the get out of the small town feel to the story, you know, kind of the trope there where if you live in a small town, the only thing that you want to do is kind of get out, it's, except for Joe. Joe's a very interesting character. It's like he wants to get out, but he doesn't. And it's almost like you feel like he doesn't even really know what he wants to do. It's not that he's accepting his fate necessarily so much as he feels like this is his only option. It's a very interesting character. And, you know, maybe you can relate to him in a certain sense, depending on how your life has gone. Or maybe you, you, he frustrates you. There's so many different emotions that you could have from this character, and I think that that makes the story very interesting. Now, he, he does have some very redeeming qualities. I mean, he wants to help his family, especially his sister. But, you know, he's got a bit of a short fuse and doesn't always think things through and stuff like that. So it's just, it's just, just so many layers to this character that you don't really expect. But... Again, that is someone that you might be able to take advantage of. So when someone offers him a deal at some point in this issue, he sort of takes it. And that's, of course, as you might imagine, where the story takes a turn. One thing I love before I go on a little bit further about this is the art in this book because it's very grungy and has that worn feel to it. And that is a compliment, by the way. It also it, uh, it seems to mirror the situation of the town or the state that the town is in. I don't want to say, I'm not saying that the art is bad. I know I'm going to use bad words, but it, it, it just felt, it feels degraded. There was a lot of great detail in there, but there was this degraded feel to it that almost kind of set the tone for the entire issue. So I love what Philip Tan did there in pairing up with Justin Jordan, who I'm a big fan of anyway, almost anything he writes, I am absolutely in for and if you look at the Brimstone character, which you can see on the cover, so this isn't really a spoiler or anything, character definitely seems interesting enough. The look is really good. There's definitely some intrigue built into the origin based on how the powers came to be and who's kind of behind everything and who's pulling the strings. But the motives aren't very clear either, so that certainly gives you something to look forward to in future issues. But, I, you know, this is one of those 
where I'm trying to figure out, okay, where does this story go? There was a couple of these new age of DC books where the, it was a clear, okay, this is where this character's going. This is what they're going to do. This is their path. This one, you're not sure what the path is. And that's, again, not necessarily a bad thing. I don't know where this is going to go. And again, as any hero or any person that gets powers for the first time, they have no idea what they're doing, but we don't even get flashes of that in this issue, really. So we'll have to find out in the next issue exactly how Brimstone deals with his powers. So I do think that this is another winner for me on the DC New Age of Heroes. I'm going to give this a little bit more of a hesitant pull, though. I really, really enjoyed it. I think the character is cool. I think it's an interesting concept. But to see where it goes from here, I'm definitely going to keep reading this. But I don't want to give it a pickup because I think it was a little bit too good for that. It's certainly not something I would say, well, I'm going to give this a couple of issues. And if it doesn't catch me, that's it. It did grab me, but it didn't grab me in the way that some of the other New Age of DC Heroes books have. And I think that at this point, there's a yardstick there because so many of these books have been so good this one wasn't necessarily as good as some of the ones that preceded it. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad book or it's going to be bad. I just feel like it didn't measure up to some of the other ones that came before it, but still a very, very good book and a story that I'm very much looking forward into diving into more. That's going to do for what we're reading. Up next, it's This, this Week in Geektainment. So what are we going to be reviewing? Find out on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Matt Ryan from Constantine City of Demons, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This week we are diving into the Oasis. It's my spoiler-filled review of Ready Player One, of course, from Steven Spielberg. And again, a lot of spoilers to talk about in this review. And I'm not going to go into every little detail of the movie as I typically do before, but I am going to give you a quick synopsis this time, just in case you didn't know. It actually follows a story where Columbus, Ohio, of all places... No disrespect to anybody in Columbus. Love our listeners in Columbus, Ohio. But it's surprisingly, the tech hub of the world in 2045 in a VR game has been created called the Oasis, where you can be anyone and do anything. It was created by a man named Halliday and, of course, Ogden Morrow, who together created this thing. And Halliday actually ends up dying. And then in his final kind of addressed to people he said that he has hidden three keys inside the oasis and whoever can find these keys unlocks his fortune and can run the oasis which means billions of dollars and the ability to run something that basically everyone in the world plays one of the lines i loved from this movie right from the jump and i thought that speaking of jump yes that was an intentional pun because when i heard jump from van halen the very beginning i should have known that this was going to be a winner right from the start. But one of the lines I love from this movie is saying that the reason the world was the way it is, you know, built up in these big slums where you've got trailers stacked on top of each other and everything just looks so, so bad. And there was a line in the movie where it goes, the world just stopped solving problems and just tried to survive them. And that's scary and poetic at the same time because you, you know, it's scary to think that the world could actually devolve into that, right, at some point. But I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole or anything like that. Let's get back to actually talking about the movie. Because you've got Wade, who, of course, is Parzival in the Oasis, played by Ty Sheridan. He is a Halliday nut, knows everything about him, idolizes the creator, and is determined 
to find these keys. Now, he has buddies along the way who, of course, H, who's played by Lena Waithe. We find out that H is a woman at some point, which I love. We also have Daito and everyone else. And, of course, we also run in to Artemis, who, of course, we later find out is Samantha, played by Olivia Cook. And you find out just how much they all have in common, how much they want this. But there's a larger purpose here as well, because you have the corporation IOI, who's kind of hiring an entire team to try and crack things, crack the secrets so they can run the Oasis and kind of find out they want to throw ads everywhere. And of course, it's run by a man named Nolan Sorrento, who plays, who's played by Ben Mendelsohn. And I have to say, Ben Mendelsohn's pretty much the perfect guy you love to hate in almost every movie, isn't he? I mean, he played that role so well in Rogue One, plays it again in Ready Player One. You just, you hate him so much. And that's one thing, you don't even necessarily call him the villain of the movie. I mean, he really is. The corporation as a whole and the idea of what they want to do is really the villain of the movie. But you just, I just hated him so much. And I know I don't like, I don't like to throw that word around, but I say that in a playful manner, I guess, is that he he just does prickish things throughout the entire movie to slowly but surely just just gnaw at you to make you hate him so much and what he's willing to do not just in the oasis itself but in the real world and going after people in the real world to forward his goal and trying to throw money around and buy everyone off and kind of putting people into servitude indentured servitude who don't kind of follow along with what he wants to do. So he's got all of these experts that are trying to find things. It was just amazing. I I almost don't even know where to go because, again, there were so many Easter eggs. I cannot possibly go into all the Easter eggs. I mean, everything from King Kong to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I may have seen a quick, really quick shot of live-action Battletoads at one point. If you saw the movie and can confirm or deny that for me, it was really, really quick, so I'm not sure if I saw what I saw. But if I did, that was awesome. Basically, think of every character you've loved from pop culture. And that was, and that was in this movie. Outside of anything owned by Disney, pretty much everything else was in this movie as an Easter egg and that, and it also was kind of, this movie was way deeper than you expect to, because it plays into our obsession with pop culture and how we all get caught up in it. It also really talks about regret, the importance of living life in the real world and finding love, just having fun sometimes. And just the, the, the final mission, the final, to find the final key basically is literally about just having fun with the game. Of course, again, big spoilers here. Adventure from Atari was the big last key challenge that you had to find. And that was the first, for anybody who's a video game nerd or really a video game historian, you know that was the very first Easter egg in a video game ever was from Adventure for the Atari 2600. You find that out in the movie in case you didn't know that already. But there's just so much stuff that goes deeper in this movie. And while at the same time, It was just so fun. It was one of those movies where I find myself sitting there in the theater and just relaxing and enjoying the story and enjoying getting lost in this world. Not just, I'm not just talking about the Oasis, but lost in the entire story of Ready Player One. I'm not going to compare this to the book at all because I did not read the book. I will freely admit that. So I cannot compare this to how the book was. It makes me want to read the book. And I know my wife's going to laugh at me when I say that because with as busy as our lives are, where am I going to find the time to read the book? But now I really want to, to see what angle the book 
has taken because I've been told by people that have read the book that it was very, very different. So now I really want to find out what angle the book has taken on the story as well, because I just got so lost in this story and the likability of the characters like Parzival, like Artemis inside and outside of the Oasis and seeing how actually their relationships, both inside and outside the Oasis kind of came together. I just thought that that was a really nice story. And one, the high five group finally comes together and you find out shows 11. I love the, all of that stuff. It's just so amazing. But there were parallels here that I kind of thought about as I was watching the movie as well and how it kind of it's kind of almost like the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory type story isn't it without Halliday himself Willy Wonka really appearing other than when you find the keys in at the very very end when again spoiler alert Artemis solves and Wade solves the final challenge so you don't really see him in that but it really takes the same kind of beats doesn't it also kind of felt like a little bit of a wink and a nod to the secret from Byron Price who, in case you don't know that story, just Google The Secret 1982. It's a treasure hunting thing, and you might get caught up in that as well. There were a couple winks and nods there that are where I thought there were some similarities that might have been drawn from. Certainly not enough to make me think, oh, well, this is exactly where they decided to lift the story from. No, this is a completely original story as far as I'm concerned. I just got little winks and nods and maybe nudges to certain things there that, and again, both things that I that I very much enjoy. So I'm not mad at it if that's exact if that's exactly one of the things that they wanted to do. But this movie just felt right. It right. It felt like a movie that was from the '80s, but with the technology from today. And the CGI I thought was really impressive in this movie. In the animation that was used, I think that it was top notch. I think they definitely spared no expense, and I have no problem with how it was used. And while I at first I was wondering if this was going to feel like a video game movie. And while this was definitely the ultimate video game nerd movie, it didn't feel like a video game movie to me. And it kind of did but didn't tackle the whole microtransactions thing because all the all the stuff that you buy for the game seems to be based on the in-game currency. But you also have real world money because you talk that that the aunt who Wade is staying with and her idiot boyfriend slash flavor of the month kind of deal used their real money to buy a set of gloves that was supposed to help them go further and find the keys and all the stuff and get fame and fortune and, and, and whatnot. And that didn't work out. So they, they lost their chance to get out of the stacks where they were. So that you you kind of tackle that a little bit, but not a whole lot. It just this movie just felt so right. It really was the ultimate nerd movie for so many reasons. Because maybe you identified with Halliday a little bit. Maybe you identified with Wade or with Samantha. There were there was someone that you could possibly identify with, I think, for Everyone in this movie, whether you were a hardcore nerd and you were picked on or not, or if you're just a lover of pop culture, if you're just a lover of video games or stuff that's just created, there was so much to love about this movie for everyone, and I just loved it all. I'm not really sure exactly how much I can go into it. The the only th- I mean, were there problems with this movie? Yeah, there were a couple. Like, yeah, it was sort of convenient that everybody that needed to be near each other sort of lived near each other, right? But again, you kind of explain that away with saying that everybody wants to be in Columbus, Ohio because the population has surged and that is the tech hub of the world right now. 
And whether you want to believe that or not, yeah, that's it makes sense that everybody would be near each other, right? Because if you're really serious about finding these keys and being a real gunter, you've got to be right there. So that was my only real issue with the movie until I really sat down and thought about it. And of course, we find out at the end Simon Pegg's character, Ogdemoro, was the guy that was right that was there that actually flipped them the coin, gave them the extra life kind of the the guy that was the keeper of all of Halliday's memories and everything like that, whose name's escaping me off the top of my head. I apologize for that. That was a nice moment, too. And you see him get choked up when when when, Art, when everything is won by Wade and Parzival. And you see him kind of honor his part in the whole creation of the Oasis and everything that he meant in Halliday's life. And it was, wasn't just as finding the mystery of the keys. It was about solving Halliday's life, basically, and kind of almost righting the wrongs that Halliday felt like he made in his life. And it was it's also ultimately a story of don't live as I lived, live differently than I lived. And I loved that about the movie, too. I mean, there were funny parts of it. There was certainly a ton of action and there were so many striking visuals Again, I can't possibly go into everything. I did love the scene where they were at the Distracted Earth. I think that was the name of the club that Artemis and Parzival went to, where they had that dance scene and it was staying alive. I really, for some reason, loved that scene and then they were dancing together and then you had the ambush scene. I also really liked T.J. Miller's character, Irock, who is kind of Nolan Sorrento's person on the inside, almost like the hitman that was hired to kind of take care of business inside the Oasis. Of course, you also had someone working for IOI outside of the Oasis. But there was a lot of comic relief there in T.J. Miller doing a lot of T.J. Miller things and doing that delivery that he does. And and then you see the final fight scene with him at the end and how he almost turns on Sorrento at, some, at one point, but doesn't really. If you see the movie, that will make, make perfect sense to you. But I, I don't really want to ramble on here because all I, I could go on forever about talking about how much I love this movie. And this is almost as close to perfect, I think, as you can get for a nerd movie because not, I mean, you had plenty of fan service and plenty of Easter eggs, but none of it I felt anyway was really shoved in our faces. There was a, there were times where you could have gone, Oh look, it's Batman or Oh, oh look, it's Harley Quinn over here. Oh look, it's King Kong. And yeah, they made it obvious that that's who they were, but it wasn't a huge deal. It wasn't a major part of what was going on. It was a secondary thing. And the fact that it wasn't shoved in my face, like the ads that, Nolan Sorrento and IOI wanted to put in the Oasis if they had solved the key challenge. The fact that it wasn't shoved in my face was one of the things I think I loved about it more than anything else. And I love what they did at the end with the changes that they made to the Oasis. And you are really kind of setting up a sequel where it was one of those things where, okay, one book has already been written. A second one hasn't been. How are you going to do a sequel? They really kind of set it up where you could do a sequel to Ready Player One if you really wanted to. But you need to find out is, though, if you're going to do a sequel, is the, okay, where is the antagonism going to come from? Not necessarily who's going to be the main villain, but what is going to go wrong and what is the antagonism going to come from now that Nolan Sorrento is in prison, in theory, and his cohorts as well. 
So where is that going to come from? We don't exactly know what happens to TJ Miller Miller's character in Iraq, other than being reset to zero, which is hap- which is what happens when you die in the Oasis, you lose everything you've collected. I also think that added another little something to the story that I loved as well. So maybe that's a direction that you could go in the sequel. But either way, this is a movie that I actually can't wait to see again at some point. I'm going to go ahead and give this 10 busted up DeLoreans out of 10. I loved absolutely everything about Ready Player One. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Ready Player One. Up next, got some nerd news to tackle. We'll do it on the Dan and Nerdy Podcast. This is Aaron Pierre from Krypton on Sci-Fi, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Putting on our best business attire this week because it's time for nerd news. And the reason I say that is because we're going to dive in to a little bit of nerd business. And starting with the box office where 3D movie sales, according to Variety, are down by $1 billion since 2010. So let's just take last year, the, the comparison, for example. 3D movie sales dropped 18% between 2016 and 2017. And 3D ticket sales only contributed about $1.3 billion to the overall box office total. Now, not to get too, you know, business channel on you here, and maybe 18%. Doesn't seem like a whole lot. Maybe even over a seven-year span, a billion dollars isn't a ton. But the, the my point is, is the number that I'm looking at here is 1.3 billion to the overall box office total. Just to give you some perspective, Black Panther's current gross, excuse me, current box office total is 655 million dollars domestic. Star Wars: The Last Jedi last year, 620 million dollars. Domestic. Now, I know some of that is 3D ticket sales, but those two movies alone almost outgross 3D movies entirely over the entire course of a year. Now, again, I know not every movie is going to be in 3D also, so there's that. But, but again, that's my point, is that do we need... 3D movies anymore. When you're going to a 3D movie, what are you really getting? From my perspective, what 3D movies used to be is the whole, oh, this thing is right in my face and, you know, there's stuff flying at me and some movies do that a little bit. And maybe that's cheesy and corny, but sometimes that works. But that's my point. Sometimes that works. And to me, modern 3D movies in theaters, all it really does to me is no matter where you're sitting, it just brings the movie a little bit closer to you. The entire movie just gets a little bit closer. Visually, how much does it really add to 95% of movies that you go see? Not a lot. And maybe this is a me problem or people like me problem, but if you wear glasses, 3D movies, not really an option for you. And I'm sure there's some special thing that you can buy. So if you wear glasses and you go 3D movies, yeah, you can put it on. I know I can put my contact lenses in too, but I don't tend to wear them very often, not to get too much into my personal life here. But I don't know what we're gaining from 3D movies anymore. I just don't understand. I would much rather go to the theater, pay $7 plus less, by the way, and see a standard definition movie that's going to look just as good. The sound sound isn't affected at all by this, so I'm still going to get the same great sound. And that's my other point. As moviegoers, 
price has become more and more important as movies get more and more expensive. Tickets are more expensive. Concessions are more expensive. We have more concession options now where we can get stuff that, again, is more expensive. It is almost like going to a sporting event now. So you're going to try to save money any way you can. That's why a lot of moviegoers are searching for things like MoviePass where they can save a little bit of money when they go see a movie and they could see as many movies as they want for a flat free every month. Now, I know that MoviePass's business model might not be able to survive the great offer that they're making, but still, moviegoers aren't looking for reasons to spend more money at the movies. And that to me, that's all 3D movies does. So I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if in even a couple of years, 3D movies have once again gone by the wayside and been another failed experiment from Hollywood. Speaking of things that are failing and failing miserably right now, according to ICV2, Wizard World Conventions has reported another huge loss, $5.73 million in 2017. That's a sales drop of about a third from 2016. And this is after they cut costs and reduce their number of shows. Remember, we talked about that on the show last year, how they were going to stop doing certain shows. I know that there was one close to the Den and Nerdy Studios here that was up in Richmond, not too about an hour and a half away from us, and they're not doing that one anymore. Now, they plan to run 17 shows in 2018. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, Wizards World's biggest problem. They really do go for the home run guests a lot, and there's nothing wrong with that at conventions. There are plenty of conventions that do that. AwesomeCon just did that. I don't have their sales numbers. If they'd like to tweet them to me at downandnerdy757 or email the show through a website, downandnerdypodcast.com, please send us your sales numbers, AwesomeCon, and we'll be happy to talk about that. But I'm thinking they're not losing $5.73 million. Now, I realize that's only one con every, you know, it's once a year, and it's maybe a different animal because Wizard World is running cons all over the, all over the country. But still, some of these con, some of the places they do cons don't need, they don't need to do cons. Wizard World, and they certainly don't bring need to bring huge top flight guests to these cons. And the other problem is, is that comic wise, they just seem to pass it over. It just seems like Wizard World just doesn't care about comics at all. And I'm going to go a step further in that, in that if you're looking at some of the guests for Wizard World cons, you know, a lot of the a lot of it is nerd related or at least nerd adjacent. But it's also starting to morph into a lot of a pop culture con, hasn't it? Because you see stars from, you see people like, I think Henry Winkler was one. and I get it. Pop culture icon from a certain era, Henry Winkler. Totally understand that. But this is supposed to be a nerd and geek convention, isn't it? At least last I checked. Now, if Wizard World wants to morph into a pop culture convention and try and have their cake and eat it too, then that's totally different marketing that they need to do. You need to remarket yourself as a pop culture convention and not a, for the lack of a better term, comic book convention because you're not that. You're really not. And I have talked, and I'm not going to mention any names on the air, but I've talked to people that have been to Wizard World Cons and have said the same thing. It's just they just don't care about comics and comic book creators. And again, I'm not going to name names here, and I'm sure that there are plenty that have had great experiences. But the pricing as well is a problem. Not necessarily the price to get into a Wizard World Con, but the prices for autographs and photo ops. And I realize that is a problem throughout conventions. Those prices are going up, but as guests go up, so do prices. So I understand that. What I'm saying is, is that if you're Wizard World 
you should probably focus on 10 shows a year. Bring them to certain cities, or you know what? Rotate cities. One year, maybe you go to, like, say, San Antonio, Texas. You do a big convention in San Antonio, maybe at the Alamo Dome or something. But then the next year, you don't go to San Antonio. Maybe you go to Austin. Maybe you go to Dallas. Or maybe you, maybe you do hit Richmond one year, and then next year, maybe two years off, you don't go to Richmond. You know, move things up a little bit. Give people a chance to miss you. Give people a chance to go, wow, I really missed that Wizard World convention that I went to last year, and I hope that it comes back. And then when it does the very next year, you've got it going on. Now, there are certain cities you could do it every year, like a city like maybe Philadelphia or something, or New York, or somewhere close to Los Angeles. Maybe you could do one every year, sure. But what I'm saying is, is that it's not working what Wizard World is doing now. They don't seem to be doing anything but trying to cut costs and not come up with new ideas or new branding. And until that happens, I'm not sure what the future for Wizard World is. Here's some big, big good news, and that is Spider-Man is finally going to be released for PlayStation 4 on September 7th, as announced by PlayStation. Yuri Lowenthal, who, of course, we talked to at DC and DC when he was in Gotham by Gaslight, played Harvey Dent, is going to be the voice of Peter Parker in Spider-Man, which is an amazing choice. After talking to Yuri, I know how much of a huge nerd he is. He is going to be great for this, no question about it. Now, the collector's edition that you can get is pretty pricey, not going to lie. It's 150 bucks, but you do get a statue from Gentle Giant, which looks pretty cool. You get the steel book and the art book for the game. There's also going to be some exclusive DLCs and skins available for certain packages. But the anticipation is finally here. We finally know when we are going to be getting this Spider-Man game. And I just really hope it's as open world as it looks. I really hope they take the Batman Arkham approach, at least for Arkham Asylum anyway, and, and Arkham City, the first couple of games, where... You know, we haven't. You have an open world, and you have side missions that you can do. But there's also a standard end game that you need to follow. I really hope that they follow that model and even take it a step further. Show me how Insomniac Games that you can take this a step further. And everything I've seen from this tells me that this can be a huge, huge success. And again, we don't know. We're going to find out probably a ton more at E3 this year. This is when we're finally going to get the big reveal and probably a lot more gameplay. We've already gotten some, but I'm sure we'll get more at E3 this year. And I, for one, can't wait to find out what's going to be happening with Spider-Man on PlayStation 4. Speaking of the Spider-Man universe, anyway, this is a rumor that's popped up quite a few times since popped up again in around April Fool's Day, and I ignored it because I figured it was an April Fool's thing, but it looks like it might have some legs. Bleeding Cool's reporting once again that Woody Harrelson, who is in the cast of the Venom movie, is indeed going to be playing Carnage. Now, this is a rumor that's been going on for months now, but it's kind of gaining traction because there's news that Riz Ahmed, who's also in the movie, is going to be playing another role of Dr. Carlton Drake. Now, again, this doesn't necessarily mean that Riz Ahmed is not Venom. I mean, excuse me, not Carnage. But, and this is just an anonymous tip that Bleeding Cool's reporting, and this can end up absolutely not panning out. But, and I know what you're thinking, maybe this isn't a smart idea. Maybe Woody Harrelson's not the right guy for this. You know how many times I've thought that about Woody Harrelson, and he continues to surprise me? Never count out Woody Harrelson at all. I've done that so many times, and he always goes out and proves me wrong. So while when I think Carnage, I don't necessarily think 
Woody Harrelson, there's just a way for him to find a way to be exactly what he needs to be for a role. So, And the other problem here is, is that, and we talked about this last week when I was doing my Tomb Raider, spoiler-filled Tomb Raider review a couple weeks ago, whenever we reviewed the Tomb Raider movie. Apparently, there's another report saying that Carnage isn't the main villain in the movie and more a setup for the sequel. sequel. And again, that to me is a very, very dangerous game. It's hard to do just a standalone comic book movie and not think there's going to be a sequel, right? Obviously, you hope there's going to be sequels. You hope that it turns into into a franchise. You hope that it just blossoms into the exact thing that you want it to be, this huge moneymaker, and at least you get a trilogy out of it, but that doesn't happen and shouldn't necessarily happen for every comic book movie. So if Venom comes out of the gate and just doesn't work and we get this tease of Carnage that now we're never going to get in a sequel, it's almost worse than not seeing him at all. And arguably, it is worse than not seeing Carnage at all because now you know which you could have had, but you're not going to get. Now, I'm not saying that the Venom movie isn't going to be successful and it's not going to have a sequel. Even if it's not successful, it might have a sequel. How many times have we seen that? Plenty of times, especially in comic book movies and nerd culture. I mean, Fantastic Four Silver Surfer was a sequel that I never thought we would see from that original Fantastic Four movie. Well, I say original, the one that had Jessica Alba in it, not the one that was god-awful from from the, I think it was late 70s, early 80s. Not talking about that one at all. What I'm saying is, is that you can't bank on a sequel. And it doesn't matter how amazing Woody Harrelson may or may not be as Carnage, or even how great Tom Hardy is as Venom. If the movie's not good, and or people don't go to see it, you're not going to get a sequel. So setting up for sequels before you know for sure you've got something on your hands, you've got a winner on your hands, is a bit of a dangerous game for me. And it's not one that I like to play. But I hope, I really do hope that the Venom movie is successful. A little bit of DC news to talk about, and this is something that's been out for a little bit now. The CW has renewed pretty much all of their DC shows. This doesn't really include iZombie, which I know isn't a straight DC property, but it's still kind of in there, and the 100 hasn't been renewed yet, so there's a couple of shows that are still kind of up in the air. But here's the thing. Are there more DC shows on the way? It seems like there are. And will where will these shows actually go? I mean, not just where they're going to fall into the lineup. How is the CW, who has announced a bunch of other newer stuff, by the way, going to have room for all of these programs. Now, I know that they've announced they're going to start to have Sunday programming. I understand that's a big deal. But again, you're only going from 8 to 10. So unless you're expanding from 10 to 11, you're not really opening yourself up to a whole lot. And now, here's the thing that I want to talk about quickly, though. Which show moves to Sunday from the DC shows? Because you almost it's almost a guarantee to me that one of the DC comic shows is going to be moving to Sunday on the CW. And I've got... Maybe the cheesiest idea for this is Supergirl. Think about it. It's Super Sunday with Supergirl, right? It just makes sense. And that's just a show that vibe-wise seems like it would work really well on a Sunday. Do you want to watch Arrow on a Sunday? Probably not. Flash is perfect on Tuesday. Don't move Flash from Tuesday. Legends of Tomorrow, maybe that's a show that works on Sunday. But again, that seems Legends of Tomorrow to me seems like a show that should follow another DC show. Like The Flash or Arrow. I would say it should follow the Flash every time. 
That's just my opinion. I think the Legends and the Flash just work well back-to-back together. And then Black Lightning, I think you could almost put that on any night of the week, and it would be fine. If you want to keep it on the night that it's on, I'm cool with that too. But I just think that... I, I think the Black Panther could definitely carry a night on its own as well. But Supergirl just makes more sense on Sunday to me, to me. But I just feel in my bones like there's another DC show coming here. And where you're going to put that, I have no idea on the CW. But, I mean, I do I do like the fact that the CW is growing, it is expanding, and all the success that it's having. DC shows are not DC shows. you got to pay attention to what's going on on the CW because there's a lot of good stuff happening and more to come. Hopefully, hacktivist from, well, from Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly is still happening on the CW. haven't really heard a whole lot on that from the guys or the CW, so hopefully that's still happening and that's going to be coming up. But... Only time will tell exactly where these shows are going to be slotted in. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, going to be going back in time, hopping in the lifeboat with Malcolm Barrett, who plays Rufus on Timeless. We'll talk to him next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Sean Ryan. And I'm Eric Kripke. And we're the creators of Timeless on NBC, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I think it's no secret if you've listened to this show before that we are big fans of Timeless on NBC. And... Of course, how can we not be big fans of this guy because of that? It's Malcolm Barrett who plays Rufus. Malcolm, how's it going, man? Good, man. How are you doing? Doing great. Now, let's start from the beginning a little bit because I was hooked on the show from the very first episode. So how quickly did you realize that Timeless was something special? You know, honestly, it was from the pilot. You know, I, I the, the very thing that attracted me is the thing that got um, sort of the buzz, um, at least for my character, was... Literally the line, you know, I'm black, there's literally no time in American history, that'll be awesome for me. I mean, that alone was was a really, like, I was deciding between a couple of different roles at the time, and, and that alone just sort of fit my, my sense of humor and, and bluntness, and also my love for time travel itself. Um, I really started to see what type of show it was um, as we started finding out more and more episodes and just seeing how the story expanded. And seeing um, not only how it handled race, but how it handled time travel, I think it was very smart about how it did it, and um, and I was just very attracted to it. And so seeing the stories that it, it developed as the the show was beginning, you know, seeing it visit Catherine Johnson, and and seeing the the sort of um, problems, the real life problems that that these things would would attract going into these time periods that were major, you know, uh, effective pieces of time. Really having that you know, mean something, having me go back to the Civil War, you know, seeing that we like, you know, blew bombs up and, and you know, visiting Nazi Germany and, and, and Ian Fleming, really seeing that up close and personal is what made me attracted to the show. Do you think it's cool that the show really tries to take every perspective on these historical events, not just one particular perspective? Yeah, I think I think that's what's interesting about the show, you know, and, and I think we're kind of going and we're reaching a different period, I think, in, in cinema and in art where seeing these different perspectives are a lot more popular and people are seeing how profitable it is, you know, from the movies like Black Panther and, and, and things like that and seeing, you know, the Fast and Furious and seeing these multi-ethnic casts, it, it, it lends itself to different perspectives and different stories, which is what you're always interested in, right? You want to see something fresh and new and different, you know? And to me, that's what we should be doing. It shouldn't be a default to whitewash everything. It should be a default to understand where everybody's coming from because those are the freshest, newest, and most honest stories. 
Absolutely, man. Now, fans have already heard your reaction to finding out about the show being saved after cancellation, so let's take a different approach. What were your expectations once production actually started going into season two? You know what? That's a great question. Good way to earn your down and nerdy podcast. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) That is is the exact question um, I always get asked. And, And so, yeah. You know, in terms of expectations, I I really was excited to see where it would go because I am a fan of sci-fi and I'm a fan of Timeless, even though I know I'm on the show. And so, to be honest, the, the story arc that I had gotten with Rufus the first season was more than I ever expected, um, even within the course of an episode. And so my expectations were to go wherever the story took me this year. You know, I was excited to see you know what this new version of rufus would be because you know it's very hard to play somebody you know when you when you do a movie you kind of you know the exact arc and you know all the things about that person and you create a story for him and that's it and then you do you know some version of him depending on the take but doing a series you kind of wind up finding out new information as the story goes on because all of a sudden you're you know the writers are steadily creating so you know i expected to still a personal side to Rufus and and still be heavily developed but I, I honestly didn't know what was going to come like that's kind of the interesting thing about doing Timeless is that you have no idea what's going to happen next and so honestly that's part of why I wanted a season two is I, I just wanted to know what the hell was going to happen next I wanted to know what was going to go on with Gia's visions I wanted to know if Rufus was going to fight more what other time periods he would visit um, those sorts of things and I think we really expand on the personal versions of all of those stories in, in our second season, particularly being in LA, you know, we wind up really dealing with these people as people, you know, we do a Robert Johnson story and we do Teddy Lamar and, and all Wendell Scott and all, all of the, and all of these stories, what's really interesting is seeing how much they become a part of the time team and really fight with us. And I think that winds up being our strongest stories is when they become just as real to us uh, or to the audience as they do uh, to us as characters. Kind of playing off of that a little bit, the first episode of season two was insane, to say the least. There was just so much going on from start to finish. So what was the vibe like in the room when you all read that script for the first time? It was a, it was a crazy vibe, man. We were, I think we were all excited because we just we never know where this show is going to go. You know what I mean? And so finding out that we were joining Keens and the idea of there being sleeper agents and, and that whole premise was like a very cool new take, you know, like the biggest things that season two has done is we've blown up the first season. We've got, we have a new villain every week. Gia now has a superpower and there may, and, and Flynn now may be a part of the time team. So all of those new things were, were interesting. Like to see, I think those are probably the four new basic elements that have, that have changed what Timeless is, and it's exciting to see. Talking to Malcolm Barrett, who of course plays Rufus on Timeless, which you can watch every week, and we definitely suggest that, Sundays at 10 o'clock on NBC. Now, Malcolm, we saw that moment finally happen for Wyatt and Lucy in this last episode, and they already have their couple nickname on Twitter. So now what I want to know is... When do Rufus and Gia get their couple nickname, and what do you think it should be? Oh yeah, so we have we have Lyatt, right? There's the Lyatt Shippers. I've heard I've heard Woosie also. I've heard that. I think we're I think we're Team Rhea. I think we're Team Rhea over here. Okay, that's how we roll. All right, all right. Um, I like that. We've gotten a we've gotten a kiss or two in the in the first season. You know, now we really I think this season we really explore the depth of their relationship, and I think you know what's really cool is I haven't been the sort of 
love interest or had the, a real relationship with a with a woman like long term on a TV show before, and so it's very fun to see this between me and her. And I think you get a lot of that. You get like it's not a will they won't they with us. It's a they they exist, and now it's about like what do they go through? You know what I mean? And I think we do it in a way because we we weren't that like sort of Sam and Diane thing, you know, going right. in. It was always sort of like he, he has a crush on her, and then it happened. Like I think you see what it means for us to be a couple who are who are kind of on the same page and who are also like kind of heroes. And at the same time, just go through the same thing that every couple goes through, which is just like how to relate to each other and how to be open with each other and, and how to grow with each other. And, and I think we have a lot of little moments like that throughout the show. You know, when Flynn enters, I sort of kiss her forehead and she looks worried and, you know, we tell stories to each other and, you know, at the end of the night, you know, she kept her visions from me cause she wasn't sure how to feel. And, you know, I end up, you know, we make breakfast together the next morning. I think we have these lot of little sweet moments together that, you know, build into a real relationship, you know, same way as like playing video games in the first season when, you know, Connor walks in while we were drunk. Like that to me was so like, I was mm -hmm. like, this is Rufus and Gio playing video games on their off time between saving the world. I was like, that's, that's kind of how I live. I, you know, any girl I'm with is probably some version of a comic girl or, or some, you know, super smart or super quippy. So this relationship to me was very real. And it's cool because you get and to have that and, nerds and, being nerds relationship on TV. Oh, it's great. And you know, you see them being like passionate people and strong people like, and you know, it kind of redefines nerds because we are people of color, because we, you know, do get to be in a romantic relationship because we get frustrated because we get angry because we do so many different things. We get to be the version of a nerd that I rarely see on television. And so mm -hmm. that was a, a hugely important thing to me. Absolutely. Now, along with that, Rufus also has to, happens to have a lot of hilarious moments on the show. And I definitely laughed out loud, man, during that dramatic reading of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme. So yeah. being, being a poet yourself, how hard was it not to just kind of ad-lib something in that moment? Well, what's funny is, you know, the the cut version of that, and I love that you know about my poetry background, was on New York team. So, you know, what's funny about that is I, I did that as it was. Someone mentioned is how hard it is to do a song, just acapella as a, as a poem, just speak it. You know, that was interesting. What's funny is on a couple of, of takes afterwards, because uh, Alyssa Sutherland was such a great joy to work with. Like, she was an excellent Hedy Lamar and just so fun and so mm -hmm. game. And it's always fun for me to like sort of test with another actor, like sort of boundaries and play and improv a little bit. And so, you know, that, that scene actually went on on a couple of different takes and, and in it, I would, I would riff the theme song, the good times. I would riff the theme song to the Jeffersons, <laughs> but like but spoken, do you know what I mean? She was nice. like, I don't believe nice. you. And then I, was, I was, well, how about this? Um, beans don't fry in a skillet. Uh, fish don't fry in the grill. Like I would just like, <laughs> do that. And just be like, I still don't believe you. And like perfectly in character. And, and she was, she was awesome. Like I wrote on Twitter the other day, literally I'd been having Coca-Cola's to like, sort of like up my caffeine. Cause you know, we're always shooting crazy nights and literally in the scene, I, before I started the poem burped and she like <laughs> stayed in and I like couldn't believe, and I was just like, "This is you're awesome, just for being on this fuck freaking roller coaster." So yeah, man, it was that was definitely a fun scene and one that on the page was, you know, the, the, that episode was written by Matt Whitney, and that was definitely one that was on the page, funny, and it was really funny and fun to execute. 
Now, Malcolm, on a more serious note, we kind of see in the last episode that Wyatt's wife seems to kind of have returned, and we've seen both Lucy and Wyatt now have dramatic changes just based on the slightest change in the timeline. So how worried is Rufus now that he could be next? You know, it's it's a, it's a crazy one to watch, man. Like, I, I love this show, and it also makes it hard to remote because of the amounts of twists and turns that happen. Like, we basically have a twist at the end of every episode, so it's hard to talk about every episode. But, you know, it was, I love the way they did that. You know, I know a bunch of people were affected and, and were like, you know, I can't believe Jessica comes back the same episode where we finally get the, the Wyatt and Lucy kiss, where they finally sort of consummate the relationship. And I'm, and I'm like, well, that's what makes this a drama. That's what's interesting. You know what I mean? Is that like things are never completely settled and you're never completely happy. Ru- Rufus is very scared about his future. I think, I think he's kind of, always trying to figure out what his future is, what his past is. And I think, you know, seeing Jessica come back is, is uh, a huge revelation. And I think you see that in the next episode, Salem, Witch. when Salem, Witch is the, our very next episode, and that's the episode where I get to tell you all the things that I'm not telling you right now. Um, <laughs> <in terms laughs> I understand. Like, I get it. Like, and it's going to be so great, but like in terms of, you know, having, you know, allusions to why Jessica is suddenly here, who that affects on the time team, what that does to Rufus and Gia and how his past or future is connected to her visions. All of that comes to a hilt or a tilt or a a culmination in, in the Salem witch hunt, which is about to happen in about a week. Speaking about being uncomfortable, you talked about Garcia Flynn kind of essentially being a part of the team now. How uncomfortable is that for the group in future episodes? And, I mean, hey, the lifeboat only carries three people, so or we, could we possibly see some odd combinations on missions, maybe? I, I, I think you might. I think one of the most interesting things that they've done this season is show you how crazy the dynamic is when you switch it up, you know, between Rufus, particularly between Rufus and Garcia Flynn, because Garcia Flynn has had uh, tried to have him killed on multiple occasions. Garcia Flynn has tried to have the time team killed and has been their direct enemy. And, you know, why it's probably the most outwardly aggressive towards him, but I think it creates for really weird dynamics and combinations between uh, Lucy and between Rufus and, and even with Gia. And so it's actually a really fun thing to play because me and Goran actually are friends and like knew each other before I knew anybody else on this. Cause we have the same reps. So it's it's actually a really fun thing because I don't I didn't get to see him that much first season, and so I see him a lot more this season, and we get to play so much together, and you get to see how awkward, how awkwardly fun our chemistry is together, both as people who know each other and as characters who hate each other. Malcolm, I have to ask you about the fans, and purely from a nerd standpoint, how amazing is it to have someone like William Shatner, who is a huge fan of the show and champions it so much? Oh, it's crazy. Uh, you know, once I knew William Shatner was a fan, um, it was a really weird, it was really weird because he's, you know, he's a Comic-Con, you know, God and an and icon is, is Star Trek. And so also the fact that like, you know, Gia's characters in the Star Trek and I'm in the Star Wars and, you know, that sort of thing. We've, we've built a really fun fan base. You know, Mark Hamill is a, is a fan of the show. So mm-hmm. like literally the two big things that, you know, both Rufus and Gia have Captain Kirk and uh, Luke Skywalker as fans of the show. So that's incredibly fun and incredibly meta as someone who works on the show and who is a fan of all things sci-fi. 
Um, Leslie Jones, you know, a huge fan of the show. So we've had like really fun, interesting people who've been fans. And so like, that was like something that blew me out of the water. Um, you know, but also it's like, we also work with a lot of geek credentials, you know, like Matt is, uh, was voice of Anakin for the cartoon and, you know, Kripke's written a comic book or two. And, and so comes from supernatural and, and, you know, and Sean Ryan's from shield and Jim Barnes wrote for Gotham. So like there's, there's some comic book credential people in, in the area already, you know what I mean? So I think, it's, it is one of those things that's created. It's the fubu of nerd shows. There you it's go. for us and by us. There you it's, go. You know I love I mean? that. Now, before I let you go, Malcolm, I wanted to keep talking about the fans for a minute because I was at the panel at Comic-Con with all the amazing Timeless fans this past year. How amazing has the support been from them? And can we finally settle on Clock Blockers as the name of the fandom? Well, that's clearly the name of the fandom. I don't think that's even up for discussion anymore. Uh, it's like It's funny, that started... There's versions of how that became a thing that started, I think, as like just a joke from like, I think from Kripke and Ryan, like where they were talking about alternate titles, because the original title of the show was, I think, called Time or something like that. And so like we weren't, you know, no one was huge fans of that as a title. And then it became Timeless. And it was like, oh, that's perfect. But they would joke about what was the other names of the shows. And so I think there was a couple titles, but Clock Blockers was one of the ones that we joked about. And and so I think Matt had mentioned it on Twitter or Instagram and like maybe a hashtag or something. And then I really started pushing it as like a fan base thing. And then like literally to the point of like printing out t-shirts for Comic-Con and throwing them out that all said clock blockers. And I think I put out, you know, and, and I think Kripke asked it at, at the, um, at Comic-Con actually when we returned. So it's been a thing, you know, it's some people find it off color, which I find hilarious because it's just like, it's not, it's not that. So it's, I find it funny because I like low-key, almost blue humor, which is essentially what it is. Mm -hmm. It's like almost dangerous, but like not at all. So unless you have a speech impediment. Well, Um, (laughs) you know. Well, if you're not a clock blocker yet, you will be when you watch Timeless every Sunday night at 10 o'clock Eastern on NBC. Of course, check your local listings in any other time zone. Also, binge it, whether you've watched it already or not, binge it on NBC.com and Hulu as well. It's Malcolm Barrett. Who plays Rufus? Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you for having me. Just feels so right talking about Timeless on the show, doesn't it? And talking to Malcolm Barrett. Rufus has been one of my favorite characters from the beginning, so it was so great to hear him dive in and tell us more about Rufus and things that are going to be going on in this season. And he was so right when he was talking about how it seems like every show has a cliffhanger. Every show has a major moment that's going to affect the next episode going forward right at the end. And I've loved that about this season of Timeless, which has a different feel. You never know how shows are going to be from season one to season two. And Timeless has done something a little bit different with the feel of their show this year. But it just works so, so well. And this cast has just such great chemistry together. That it's, you know, I hate to use the term appointment viewing because I think it's kind of cliche, but I really, I just set the time like I need to watch, make sure I watch Timeless on Sunday night, 10 o'clock Eastern on NBC because I just love it so much. I can't help myself. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to the folks at NBC and Malcolm Barrett for joining me this week and setting things up. You can find out more about the show by going to downandnerdypodcast.com. And again, you can catch my interview with Aaron Pierre from Krypton. You might actually be able, right after the show ends, you might actually be able to roll right into that. So if you, keep, you just keep playing, 
you'll get right there. You can also follow us on social media, facebook.com slash down and nerdy. We're at down and nerdy seven five seven on Twitter and Instagram as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.